All right, guys, what is up? We're up for another episode of the Playing to Win series. It's been uh, a few weeks since I've put one out on this, and uh, I'm joined today by my friend uh, Brad Mills, also known as Bitcoin Brad, I guess. How you doing, Brad? Doing great, man. Good, good. So um, we decided to put this together because I've had a lot of people asking about Bitcoin. I've got guys in my communities asking a lot of questions. They wanted me to do like a more specific casts on the basics. So this is not advanced stuff. We're not going to be talking about altcoins or shitcoins. I, I mean, we'll probably will because I want to get your opinion on what you think those are. I like to get the opinion of different people, right? So I've had Amir on. I've had uh, Charlie from Cultivate Crypto. I've got Brad on for you today. He's a big uh, guy in the Bitcoin space and uh, super smart dude. He's been around for a while, successful entrepreneur. He's had some businesses which he's gone in and out of, uh, runs a podcast. Um, why don't you give them the 411 on your story? Just give them like the elevator pitch, let them know who you are so they get a little bit of background. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. So I, I started off originally with a, with an idea that I wanted to make some movie, uh, a movie. And I figured, well, I'm going to need some money to make a movie. Uh, so I grew up poor. I grew up like no, you know, no, no golden parachute or anything like that. I was, I was on welfare and like we live in government housing and stuff. So we didn't really have a good financial background education. So I, I didn't go to business school or anything like that. I just wanted to uh, pull myself up from my bootstraps and make a movie. So I Googled, how do I make money online? And then I got scammed quite a bit for a few years and got into all kinds of different sales things and Ponzi schemes and MLM shit. Like I just got scammed like crazy. Every, every, like imagine that's your business school. How do I make money online? So it didn't work out quite so well for me, but I stuck with it and I learned some valuable stuff of what not to do. And eventually I, <clears throat> I actually started a business on Facebook where I was making Facebook games when they opened up the API in 2006 or seven. And I was, had some success there. So we were making some good money. I actually had a real business. I wasn't like, chilling like f stupid fake gas pills or anything crazy from from what i was uh, learning about from google but i actually had a business and and i i had some success and um then i started to figure like well now i got some money in the bank account what 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 do i do with it and that's kind of where i started to follow entrepreneurs and investors and start to try to learn about like what do i do do i make multiple income streams do i diversify do i try to uh create another business do i just buy a bunch of gold and like hide out in the mountains or what do i do <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of me man i just i just that's that I, now 10 years later uh, i'm here <laughs> yeah i think i came across you about 10 years ago at jason gaynard's event at, at mastermind talks right that's that's where we crossed paths that's right yeah we we met there and you were doing uh interviewing entrepreneurs in your sports cars and i was like who's this guy that's yeah. pretty cool i want to i want to get an interview in a sports car but Never yeah, did. yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So, um, how did you get into Bitcoin? Like, talk about that a little bit. At at what point? Like, at what year did you get into it, and why did you decide that this was important and significant? Yeah, so I got into Bitcoin in 2011. Um, so I was, you know, I was doing a, a game company, like I said, and I was managing a game economy of digital currency. It was just no value. You couldn't trade the currency outside of the game, but people were spending like a couple thousand dollars a month on this thing. And it just blew me away that people would spend that kind of a money on digital currency. So I kind of had a bit of a foundational understanding that people can value digital stuff. And um, so it was kind of with that. And then also being learning about uh, the the history of money, 
when I started to have some money, I started to think, well, what, what do I do? Invest in stocks, I guess. That's what people do. So I started looking into the stock market and kind of went down the, uh, you know, got, got scammed again by people pitching like uh, Armageddon stock porn stuff. Like, you know, everything's going to crash. The whole market's going to collapse. So buy these stocks. These are going to save you, <laughs> like that kind of stuff. And I was gullible. So I, I was like trying to play the stock market. And uh, <clears throat> this was 2010 or something like that. So we're kind of coming out of the 2008 crash. And um, I was, I was, you know, th all those guys were wrong because when you go back and look, like the stock market should have crashed. It should have kept collapsing. The risk should have got flushed out of the system. But I just kept looking into that stuff and being like, why are the stocks going up? And what's a good hedge against this thing falling apart? Because fundamentally, they're, like, they're not trading at, at fundamental values. There's no reason why these stocks should all be still up and why these banks should still be solvent if, if you know, Bear Stearns is going bankrupt and they're all doing the same thing and the whole mortgage market's collapsing, then there should be a lot more risk to get flushed out of the system. So I was not exposed to the stock market at all. And instead, I started to buy gold. And, and when I was looking into buying gold, uh, it was a, a Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki was a book that was in my mind from trying to have a financial education. So he was talking about how gold is a scarce resource and it's been money throughout history and fiat money is just printed by central banks and it's debased and stuff. So I was also kind of trying to follow the libertarian sort of school of thought about Austrian sound money and things. So I just was going down these rabbit holes of sound money and gold is money and fiat money is just printed by central banks. So I totally kind of de-risked everything away from stocks and and cash and I, you know, built a house and took my, took my spare cash. I just didn't want much cash. Wanted to have assets uh, like like, you know, not income producing assets, but gold and 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 uh, a house and things like that. And my business, of course, I still had, which was generating some cash flow for me and reinvesting in myself as an entrepreneur trying to grow the business. But, you know, my spare kind of like cash that was just sitting in the bank account, I'm like this shit's going to fall apart. I don't want any of this dirty cash. <laughs> so that's when I found Bitcoin in 2011. I was like from this foundational sort of knowledge about gold is money. Gold is valuable because of scarcity. And fiat money is just infinitely printed by central banks. And they're bailing out all the Wall Street banks that should have gone bust and, and, and putting that on the taxpayers. So that's got to show up in inflation and devaluation of the money supply at some point. So mm. I don't want this stuff. It's going to go down in value. So when I saw Bitcoin in 2011, I was just like kind of a nerdy sort of like reaction to it being like digital gold that I can mine with my computer. It's amazing. Mm. So instead of putting everything in gold, I took half of what I was going to put in gold and I put it in Bitcoin. So, so I bought, you bought your first Bitcoin in 2011. Yeah. I used to have this old work laptop. I think it was around 2012 or 13 that I first came across uh, Bitcoin and I set up my laptop to mine it. And I think it, it pulled a few Bitcoin. I don't know how many, but I ended up just forgetting about it and leaving the laptop at the office and somebody stole it. So somewhere out there, somebody's got those. <laughs> oh um, man, that sucks. Yeah. Um, well, you know, back then it was w worth like pennies, I think, like maybe a quarter or 50 cents. Or right, something like right. That. Yeah. So we got a few talking points here that I want to dive into. Again, guys, this is just going to be kind of like a Bitcoin basics to give you some of the fundamental understandings. I did this um, survey actually here. Here, let me pull it up because I want to um, I want to just kind of cite the survey results because I was asking people what their engagement was in crypto. Okay, here we are. So here, I can throw this up on the screen, can I? Yeah, share screen. 
uh, application window and there you go. So you can see this is about four weeks. I just asked people, you know, what's your current position on Bitcoin? I got 20,000 responses. 21% uh, I own it and trust in it. 23% uh, said I want to own it, but I don't know where to start. 36% uh, said curious about it, but not ready to jump in yet. And 21% says it's a scam. Bitcoin's going to zero. So <laughs> this is not for the scam guys. This is going to be for the 23% that said they want to own it and they don't know where to start. The other 36% that are curious, but not ready to jump in. Hopefully this offers some clarity for you guys today. Um, let me go to these questions or these talking points we got. So the first one is, oh, before we proceed, guys, I'm looking at the count. We got a lot of viewers here and the likes are nowhere near close to that. If you're watching this on YouTube, just hit the like button. It just helps me out with the algorithms. Okay, do that for me. Um, so your first talking point is we could be heading for a Great Depression. Talk about that and the significance of what of what Bitcoin is going to play in that. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm like, I'm curious what you think about that before I start going. Do you, do you think we're at the precipice of some sort of big systemic crisis here? Or do you think they're just going to print their way out of it and we're going to? I think that they're going to try to print their way out of it. I don't think the government's ever going to get out of debt, like never, ever, ever, ever. Um, it's not happened at the levels that they're going at. Um, let me just grab the M1 money supply chart because that's probably relevant. Um, I'm sure you already know what this is, but for the viewers that don't, this is worth just throwing up on the screen too. So um, if you're not familiar, this is this is 2019 ending here. And then this is all the, the money that was printed in 2020. So you know what happened right there when that parabolic rise started? Yeah, talk about that. <clears throat> so in 2019, I mean, we're seeing the stock market just continue to go up and up and up over uh, Trump's presidency and, you know, um, he, with, with, you know, lowering uh, tax rates and, and printing money and stimulus and all that stuff. But really, presidents don't have much of an impact on the stock market. It's really the the central bankers and the Federal Reserve and the and the manipulation of the interest rates that controls the stock market. Mm -hmm. So when when 2019 um, September 2019, um, there was this thing that happened, which was like a real big crack showed up in the financial markets to show that everything that did that they did over the last ten years to try to paper over the 2008 uh, subprime mortgage collapse didn't work. So in 2008, the regulators globally cre came together and created these uh, Basel Accords, which are kind of like a set of regulations that that are like stress tests for the for the central banks and the systemically important banks, like the big huge banks. And these things are like you got to have a certain amount of reserves backing the money in your deposit in your accounts for your customers. So much risk with your uh, commercial banking. Um, you got to meet a certain amount of uh, expected 30-day withdrawals for for uh, you know normal activities, so that the banks basically can't be too over levered like they were in 2008, which which ended up causing the whole thing to, to melt melt down. Right, mm. the the banks. If everybody hasn't watched The Big Short, obviously it's a great sort of dramatic take on what happened. It's pretty much truly what happened. Yeah, that's on the, Netflix too. Still, I think. Yeah, it is. And and they in and they basically discovered that there's this kind of fraud happening on Wall Street where the ratings agencies like Standard and Poor's were just taking fees from the big banks to make these extremely toxic, risky derivatives products that they would then go and sell to other banks and to pension funds and to other investors. And they would 
they would mix toxic assets with good assets. So they take like triple A rated stuff like government bonds, right? You'd think the US debt is, is a triple A rated asset. It's not going to bankrupt, you know, but they would stack that in with toxic shit like subprime mortgages and bets, derivative bets, synthetic bets on subprime mortgages. So it creates this toxic basket that everybody thinks is good. And then they sell it to each other. And then Banks have this thing called the repo market. It's an overnight lending window where banks can borrow money from each other and not just borrow money, but these derivative instruments. So I'm trying not to get too deep into it to confuse people, but just say that these banks are gambling with each other and they're, they're lending each other base money. So this M2 money or M1 money supply here, there's layers of money in the system. There's M0, which is base layer money. You think that that's the seed of money. It's real dollars. It's stuff that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury creates. And then banks can fractionally lend it out to each other and to people and then take loans on it and fractional reserve that up into the M1 money supply. So that like $100 of base money, $1,000 of M M1 and M2 money. And uh, go ahead. So sorry, I was just going to jump in here and just kind of like uh, distill it down a little bit because I want to keep it at the basics level. Um, so when I look at this chart, I'm looking at the billions of dollars that have been printed. And this is, you know, where the cursor is right now. It's uh, January 2020. So let's say the start of 2020. So this is January 6 here. As I drag the cursor across here, you can see all the years were at 2010, 20, 2005, 2000, all the way down to 1980. They have printed a ton of money, about a third, it looks like, because I went from 4,000 to 7,000 billions of dollars is what it says here. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's trillions. It's trillions of dollars that Trill they've printed. It, yeah, like this is insane. <laughs> like you cannot fathom what kind of effect this is going to have on the marketplace, the stock. Like it doesn't look like it's had much of, you know, like much of a... Yeah effect from the user's end like you know you still go to the gas station and gas pretty much costs cost the same you want to buy a loaf of bread it's pretty much the same everything's kind of like you know you don't really notice it but the thing that most people understand is that the value like the purchasing value of your dollar keeps going down over time because they keep making more money they keep printing it out of thin air um which which is one of the problems that um bitcoin solves because there's a limited supply. There's only ever going to be 21 million of these things. I heard somewhere that because one of the one of the things that I've heard people protest is, well, what happens when they run out of mining Bitcoin? And I think somewhere I came across the stat where they're saying that um, because of each having event every four odd years or so, they're legitimately going to be mining this stuff until uh, like 2150 or something like that. Yeah, there's not really a risk that Bitcoin's going to run out of like security. The miners are bit pretty well paid security guards for the Bitcoin network, and it's the biggest, like most secure network on the planet. Has more computing power than the NSA and the CIA and the government of China and the America and Google and Facebook all put together. There's okay. more. There's more decentralized computing power securing Bitcoin than ever anything else on the planet. So that's a really well paid uh, system of of compute power. And there's also transaction fees inside of every Bitcoin transaction. So there's kind of like a, a mathematical um, formula that, that shows that the fees are going to replace the block reward probably in around 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're not really going to have to worry about it because the miners are still going to want to process Bitcoin transactions because they're, they're not going to be paid Bitcoin from the 
the block reward anymore, but they're going to be paid Bitcoin in every block with fees from people like you and me who are using Bitcoin and paying fees to the miners. Right. So Satoshi created this, uh, this, this system of game theory incentives with putting 50 Bitcoins bounties in every block when it was launched because there was no fees. No one was using it. So there was no fees there. So he had to reward people somehow. So he mm -hmm. created the way to issue the whole supply over a hundred years via block rewards. And then, we got to the point now where it's like the fourth epoch of Bitcoin where the halving is not for another three years. And there's 6.25 Bitcoin now being issued in every block. That's enough to like incentivize it to be the biggest computing network on the planet. And as the fees, as the price of Bitcoin goes up and as millions and millions of more people come onto the Bitcoin network, the fees will eventually replace the block reward. And as, as Bitcoin price goes up, so do the fees. So mm. that, that's why Bitcoin, like that's why I'd say that in the next 20 years or so, most of the block reward Bitcoins are going to be already issued. And then at that point, it'll be fees securing the network more so than the block reward for the next 100 years or whatever. That makes sense. Okay, so let's go back to that point of <clears throat> we could be heading for the Great Depression. Um, so well, that chart, man, like, like, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> and my view is the government's never going to get out of debt. They're going to keep printing money. I feel like that the Great Depression should have happened already. You feel like it's long overdue, but it never seems to come, right? Yeah. So what's your what's your position on that? Well, like we're seeing a show up in that chart that you just showed. Like they, they don't really have many tools left. In 2008, they, they had the tool of printing money and that's what they did. They printed four or $5 trillion and did the quantitative easing, the bailouts of Wall Street and, mm. and all the big corporations that were taking too much risk and, and got bailed out by the taxpayer. And then they kept this, re this overnight uh, lending window open but they weren't using it so they were trying to say we're not doing quantitative easing anymore the markets are healthy look the basel the basel the basel three requirements are getting put in the banks have stress tests they're passing them so then in, in september 2019 right before that tick in the chart the banks stopped lending to each other and the and the interest rate shot up to eight to ten percent and while the prime rates like the the, the central bank rate was like 0.5%. And they tried to raise the interest rate a little bit because the only thing to stop um, to stop printing money, what they have to do is they have to raise the interest rates because then they can, like, when the rates go higher, people will borrow less. Like, the banks will borrow less and they'll do less risky derivative stuff because it's actually more expensive to take bets. But when the rates are low, it encourages a lot of, a lot of like, risky stuff to happen in the markets. And 2010, 2008 gave uh, gave all the bankers basically the permission to take as much risk as they wanted because they knew that when they blew up the system, they'd get bailed out. Mm -hmm. And so what did they do in 2019 when the rates went up a smidge, like 0.25%, they tried to raise them a little tiny bit. The banks just started to blow up. They started to stop lending thing that caused the whole credit crunch in 2018, 2008. So they quickly said like, we're going to give you as much money as you want. Okay, the, the overnight window is open. Anybody can take money. And they started printing hundreds of billions of dollars of base money, like the M0 money, that can then be fractionally reserved into trillions of dollars through lending and through the, the money multiplier. So it took a few months to see it. But then it's not just the Federal Reserve printing money that caused that parabolic rise. That's part of it. But it's also the Federal Reserve is more like sinister like in the way that they're just printing money directly into the bank accounts through the overnight 
repo markets and it's continuing ongoing quantitative easing. Now, what this does is it's like, it doesn't let banks fail. It doesn't let companies fail. It just lets them continue to do the same risky, toxic behavior that caused the 2008 collapse and caused the March crisis. When, when we saw everything drop like crazy in March, it's because they, they, they didn't actually get to the point where they could pass the stress tests. So mm -hmm. they tried, they had 10 years to get up like the proper liquidity reserves and proper risk management protocols and everything. And then when the day came that they had to actually put them, put them in, in place, the whole thing fell apart and the, the, they had to print $6 trillion to bail everybody out. And they've suspended all requirements for any systemically important bank to have to meet any of the stress tests. So they don't need to even have any percent reserves anymore. So the, how, literally the money in your bank, how long can it go on? Yeah. You know, before the whole thing collapses on itself. Well, that's the thing that, that that's why like we could be heading for Great Depression 2.0 because this does not make any sense that this is that money itself can just be printed and inflated 25 percent like this on a parabolic like scale and that it wouldn't cause some kind of hyperinflation. Like mm. this is what happened in Weimar, Germany. Like they got they got they got ahead of themselves uh, with the money printing think we're headed for that type of level of hyperinflation like you see in Argentina or Venezuela or, or Lebanon or something like that that happened over the last few years because we got a like there's there's a few tools they have left there's countries in the world where the interest rates have actually gone negative mm -hmm. and they've been toying with that in Europe and Japan for a while so we could see negative interest rates before we see hyperinflation because they do have a few tools left in the tool belt to like what yeah. we're seeing actually today with all the stock shenanigans going on with GameStop Mm -hmm. Those are some more tools that they have. They can actually, like before we see Great Depression or or uh, like hyperinflation, here's some things they can do. They can print another $10 trillion, right? Like that's not going to cause hyperinflation. It's just going to continue to allow them to kick the can down the road for another few years. They can mm -hmm. print $10 more trillion. They can, uh, they can lower interest rates into the negative territory. They can write off half your student loan debt. They can give everybody... Um, 0% mortgages to stimulate people to go buy and lower the the um, down payment requirements for the, for a year or say. They can do some sort of um, stimulus like they've been doing, like direct payments into people's bank accounts. Mm -hmm. and, and like, you know, they could double everybody's credit cards. Like if you've got a $10,000 limit on your credit card, they could say all like, this is like a, a jet debt jubilee sort of thing where you everybody now has an extra go in and just take money from people like just to you know deny them access to their bank accounts and liquidate balances right like we've seen was it Cyprus or Greece that did that yeah Cyprus and Greece did that Cyprus Greece did a the sovereign default on their debt and all the all the wealthy people that had like a lot of money in banks just woke up to half their money was just gone mm -hmm. so so like that's another that's one that's a darker path we can go down is like okay the the one thing they can do to stop a global depression is to switch to modern monetary theory and like do a lot of debt forgiveness and stimulation but they're kind of already like to the point where the biggest metric you want to look for that is the uh, debt to gdp ratio mm -hmm. and and like we're at like 130% debt to gdp gdp to debt mm -hmm. sorry debt to gdp and that's the highest it's ever been in history like before the big difference between now and before and, and other times during the depression and world war ii and things like that is that they ha they didn't use up any of these tools yet like they didn't do massive stimulus they didn't do interest rates low 
like back then the interest rates were so high that they could actually taper the interest rates down to like 3% or something. And that would help the economy. But now they've used nearly everything in the tool belt and, and they've jacked up the GD, like they've jacked up the debt rate so high that it's 130% or something debt to GDP where that's the, that's bigger than it was in during world war two. So there's not even a really systemic global emergency happening. Like, could you imagine if there was like a world war breakout or something right now, they don't have the ability to lower the interest rates much more at all. They don't have the ability to print more money because then uh, that would put us to a 200% debt to GDP. And that's just like, it's already uncharted territory. We're, we're at the precipice right now of some huge systemic shift and it's going to either be a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. So I'm hoping it's the good thing. I'm hoping it's not great depression, <laughs> but, but man, it's uh well, okay. So let's move on. So, I mean, like what he's basically saying there is if you take all the ingredients of what's going on in the economic world today and you put it in a blender and turn that thing on, you're basically going to pour yourself a nice shit shake. Okay. Like, that's <laughs> yeah, that's what we're dealing with here. A shit shake. Um, so let's go to the next point here. Cause we got, um, how properties of decentralization, scarcity and censorship resistance mean Bitcoin will perform even better if there isn't a global depression. Talk about that. So yeah, with all those things that we've talked about, we've laid the base foundation here of how, sh how the shit shakes being blended up for everybody to, to enforce forced on them to, to suck it down. But what if you don't want to suck down that shit shake? What if you just want to, uh, be an independent thinker? Well, then you're going to risk having your access to to your social media turned off. You're going to have you're going to risk being censored online. You know, if you don't go along with CrowdThink, then you're going to be censored. And unfortunately, that's the way things are going. Um, and people are giving up their rights like crazy right now. So this is this is like another sign of of a of a crisis that where people are willing to give up all of their rights and freedoms. And, and we don't even have something serious happening like a global uh, depression or a world war. So I did a, a podcast episode with Dr. Vieira. He's a constitutional expert. And he, and he was telling me a lot of really interesting things about how, how it really was in the 20s and the, and the 30s when the depression was happening during the world wars. And he's afraid of like now more than back then. He thinks people are giving up their rights faster today than they were back then when there was like a real threat. So, so what does that do like that makes the people that have value like wealthy people entrepreneurs anybody that values things uh, and and wants to achieve and and make their lives better it makes them go look for things that are valuable so when the markets are crashing like we saw in march people will sell whatever they have to get cash because it's just the base reaction to like i need cash because cash is the king right now but people also have seen that chart you posted and they're, they're seeing that show up and like they can't just keep par parabolically printing money and expect it's not going to have a knock on effect in a couple of years. We're already seeing the effect of that. Inflation is happening in the things that rich people want. So inflation is showing up in the housing market and in the Bitcoin price and the stock market. There's no, there's no fundamental reason why stocks should be where they are right now. Ray Dalio says that we're in such a crazy time that people are looking at stocks as, as stores of value, not even taking into fact that you can just issue more stock and then it just dilutes the whole thing. So people are just looking to get out of cash. So in a crisis, there's a, there's like people will sell the cash and go into cash, but then they'll redeploy into things like what rich people want. So sports cars and fine wines and art and stocks and real estate and shit like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin 
is, you know, people early days, it was like people like me, like libertarians and technology adopters and anarchists and Austrian economists and stuff like that, gold bugs and stuff were, were into Bitcoin. But we're in a different phase of the market now where where it's 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 really serious people uh, like Stan Druckenmiller was was commenting on buying Bitcoin for one of his funds. And um, Paul Tudor Jones is one of the one of the biggest asset managers on the planet on, you know, manages or influences trillions of dollars of, of assets under management was talking about how Bitcoin is something that they're buying. And then you got people like Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy owns a public company that puts his whole treasury into Bitcoin, buys $400 million worth of Bitcoin, and then starts to talk about how Bitcoin is digital real estate and how like pointing out the, the problems with the money printer. And he said that as of March, when he saw them print that much money and he saw the supply of the money go up by 25% in one you know six month period, he just sees that that the cash in, uh, is just burning a, a, a hole in his balance sheet and he wants to find something else that he can park his assets into that's going to be part of the future in a hopeful way. Because it doesn't have to be Great Depression 2.0. Like we can find a way out of this with technology and with universal basic income with some level of, of like some level of modern monetary theory policies and progressive like financial ideas is good for the world. But we shouldn't let these people just print as much money as they possibly want because that's going to devalue the dollar like crazy. So there is a fine line between using the money printer for good and ending some suffering and like providing people a safety net. Like we live in Canada and I'm pretty sure you probably love the ability to have free healthcare here. I know I do. I'm willing to pay some level of taxes for that. I don't want to pay 70% for it, <laughs> but I'll, I'm, I'll pay like 40, 50% of, of my, of my, uh, of taxes for that to live in a, in a good health, you know, safe environment. I mean, 40, 50 is a bit much. I'd rather pay capital gains tax of 25. <laughs> right. Right. Um, let me take you back to the uh, second point because you're talking about the properties. Um, so let's talk about the three main properties, decentralization, scarcity, and censorship resistance. Can you kind of expand a little bit on why those are significant and why that's so important going going forward for us? Well, yeah. So, so we see the inflation showing up in the things that rich people want, which are scarce assets or what rich people perceive as scarce assets. People don't want to be in something that's not scarce. They don't want to be in dollars because they can see that they're not scarce and people can just keep printing them. Like the 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 0.1% like money printers, the the central bankers are just going to keep printing them. So they're not scarce. Gold has been money throughout 5000 years of history because it has these properties, scarcity, fungibility. I mean, there's a bunch of prop there's a bunch of properties of money, but the main one is scarcity. The the one of the problems that I came across with gold recently is that because they continuously mine it um, and they keep recovering it during the recycling process, obviously. Um, I heard somewhere that the gold supply doubles every 40 years or so. And I'm, I mean, I'm going to propose something here because when they're done mining earth, there's asteroids out there that have rare metals as well. They're going to start mining those. So it's not like gold is, you know, got a finite supply. I mean, I'm sure there's a finite supply somewhere at some point, but it's not that scarce. It's not like Bitcoin. Yeah, no, gold gold is like kind of different than Bitcoin because gold like the higher the price of gold goes, the more incentive you have to go find the harder to find gold. Cuz mm -hmm. if gold goes up to $20,000 an ounce, then it makes a lot more sense to go try to dig it under the under the oceans and try to find gold under the oceans or to try to like 
go get the asteroid gold. There's quadrillions of dollars worth of gold in the asteroid belt. So mm -hmm. yeah, it doesn't make any sense to um, to see gold at like $100,000 an ounce because then it would just keep incentivizing people to just go find more gold. And then you're right, it would just continually add to the supply, which would destroy the scarcity properties. Why is the decentralization component so important with Bitcoin? Okay, so we talked about how like the growing sort of trend right now that we're seeing online of people getting banned from social media and getting their bank accounts turned off. Like there was a there was a thing that was, uh, I think Deutsche Bank or one of those banks was saying that like if you didn't wear a mask in the bank, they could just close your bank account. Mm -hmm. Like I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not like one of those people that's I, I'm a, like not wanting to catch coronavirus and I wear a mask everywhere I go. And I'm kind of one of those guys that was like calling the whistle, blowing the whistle like, hey, guys, we got to like check this thing out. Everybody's got to stay home. And uh, I was one of those people early on, but mm -hmm. I'm a privacy rights guy and I'm a free speech guy. So. When you start seeing companies, whether you swear, wherever you stand on the coronavirus mask issue, you got to stand up for, for free speech and privacy because this is a slippery slope. When they can shut your accounts off and shut off your access to money because of your political views, that's not that's not right. Like, well, there's a bank in Florida that shut down Donald Trump's accounts. They just, sorry, we're not going to bank with you anymore. Right. Like we've got friends too, mutual friends in, in MMT that have had their bank accounts turned off in the last year because they just decided that, oh, well, your business is too high risk for us we, and close right. down their business account, close down their personal account. I mean, like Bitcoin is money for your enemies. You know, anybody can use Bitcoin, just like dollars, like cash money. Like it's it, just because cash money is being used for illicit transactions doesn't mean that cash money is not, you know, we shouldn't use cash money anymore. Mm -hmm. Like money is just a tool. And Bitcoin takes away the power of centralization and censorship from money, which it should be. It should just because be a tool. You don't need anybody's permission to access the blockchain or, or get your Bitcoin whenever you want it. That's right. It's a network that anybody can participate in. And the difference between um, like, like, obviously, we know that there's a real need for censorship resistance in payments because for the longest time, it was illegal to just buy marijuana. Even in Canada, people are being sent to jail for buying marijuana or CBD even, which isn't even like a psychoactive thing. It's just a health oil. <laughs> you, you, you were going to jail for that. So that's, that's censorship and that's financial censorship. And you should be able to do whatever the hell you want with your own money and your own body as long as you're not hurting anybody else. That's like the libertarian sort of belief. And Bitcoin is kind of like a free market money. It's a free speech money and it's a libertarian money. It's like the purest form of Austrian economics. Mm -hmm. It's hard, sound money at the base layer. Nobody's, because it's decentralized, there's a hard, there's a hard cap at 21 million and nobody's going to be able to collude and, and print more Bitcoin. Like it's in the code. So, so it can't be stopped. And that's the difference between Bitcoin and any of the other cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is the most decentralized and it, it runs on the largest network of proof of work and nobody can come together and just decide, well, 21 million is good and all, but we want 23 million. Mm -hmm. We want another 2 million to be printed for another 10 years of supply issuance for the miners. That's not going to happen. Like this mm -hmm. thing is so decentralized, they can't stop it and nobody can change it. It's, it's also so decentralized and so public. I mean, one of the things that I hear a lot of people that get confused about it. It's like, oh, Bitcoin's where all the bad guys use, you know, to transfer. It's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard because it's completely public and transparent and available to anybody to see where the Bitcoin are, in what wallet, in what amount, you know, how much was transferred. Cash is the dirty money. Like there's, like there's more crime committed with cash than there is with Bitcoin, 
right? Oh yeah. Understand that. And not just by not just by like normal petty criminals or even drug dealers or whatever. Like the banking, the bank, the big banks in the U.S. are pretty much committing lo- money laundering every day. With there was like I think it was a uh, I can't remember if it was J.P. Morgan or or one of those big banks basically laundered billions of dollars for Mexican drug cartels and they got a little slap on the wrist for it. Nobody mm-hmm. went to jail. Like they've they've literally laundered and paid they like. The big banks have paid more fines than the Bitcoin market cap. Like Bitcoin's like what five hundred billion market cap. The big banks have paid more than five hundred billion in fines for illegal activity. So the banks are the most corrupt at the, at the top. It's like top down corruption, and because they can't stop what the banks are doing, it would sh- shut the entire markets down and send us into a global depression. They just let them keep committing all these frauds and then kind of slap them on the wrist and let them keep going. Mm-hmm. So. In Bitcoin, there was a chain analysis did a survey every year. They do a study to see like what's Bitcoin being used for. Less than 1% of Bitcoin transactions are for illicit activities. So like people will go on and say the majority of Bitcoin transactions are for criminals and shit like that. It's just salty no coiners that are trying to feed you that shit milkshake. Yeah. Um, Okay. So so let's go to the next point. So you've got here uh, how Bitcoin isn't immune to the collapse of the everything bubble but will benefit long-term even if there is short-term volatility. Right. Like, so we're seeing an exodus from cash and other assets and things like gold into Bitcoin because people are starting to recognize that it's scarce properties are super important in a world where digital money makes a lot of sense. Everything's being disrupted by the internet and digital money, just a native internet money just makes a lot of sense. And also a store of value. Gold is a, 10 12 trillion dollar market cap bitcoin's 500 billion so it just has a lot of upside if bitcoin can compete with gold which it probably will and probably will surpass in my lifetime i expect bitcoin to become a a global reserve asset like in the tens or even 100 trillion dollar of market cap so as the wall street and institutions and super high net worth individuals and entrepreneurs and all this whole this new class of investors are coming into bitcoin they're, they're recognizing the properties that make it special of, of censorship resistance and decentralization and the scarcity aspects of it. So what that's doing is it's 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 replacing the old class of like people like me who were who were just interested in the technology and wanted to see it become a hedge against central banks and stuff like that with a new class of investors who are already exposed to the existing markets. So if if your listeners probably have stocks and probably have some gold and some real estate, and now they want to get some Bitcoin, well, they're the new class of investors that are coming into the market, right? So if the if if the big event happens where we hit, we head into a big market crash and the market melts down, I mean your your listeners are probably going to try to sell all the shit they have to to get some cash because they want some liquidity. And it doesn't mean that Bitcoin is immune now. Just because Bitcoin acts as a hedge against um, these these sort of events doesn't mean it's immune to people selling their Bitcoin because they're going to want cash. Until mm-hmm. cash starts to hyperinflate in a way that we can see it in our daily lives, people are going to still naturally gravitate to want to go to cash in emergencies. So in the short term, if there is a stock market crash, Bitcoin's going to drop probably 50%, just like it did in March 2020. Uh, 2020. Like everything, like oil went negative. Like mm-hmm. th- think things are things are not um, uncorrelated at the macro level to that extent. Like Bitcoin is not going to protect you against a black swan event. But in the long term, 
Bitcoin is going to protect you against the deflation and the devaluation, sorry, the inflation of money, the money supply, which devalues your savings. So if you're thinking about Bitcoin as a long term bet, you'll be fine. Just buy some more on the dip. But people are, when people panic, they sell everything and they fly to, they fly to cash. Yeah, that's cool. You know, when they sell it all, then Bitcoin's on sale. Just buy as much as you can afford, right? I mean, that's yeah. I look at it. Um, so let's go to the next point. Um, this one's interesting because <laughs> I was watching an interview last night with Michael Saylor, and he was talking about Bitcoin as digital real estate. So I love how you included this in the talking points. Um, why you should think about Bitcoin as digital real estate, which allows you to avoid paying taxes on your Bitcoin. Talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, if Michael Saylor illustrated this perfectly on one of the podcasts he was on recently. And he, he, he basically said that because it was like Ben Askren, he's an MMA, MMA fighter, was asking Michael Saylor, hey, man, like I've got some gains. I've been in Bitcoin for a few years. I got a I got like a million dollars in gains. What should I sell some? Should I take some profits? And Michael Saylor said, you know, he 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 knows a lot of high net worth individuals. And when he talks to them, he says, hey, what's the source of your wealth? You know, like, how'd you guys get your money? And usually there's a common denominator is that somebody in their family long ago bought some land in a city somewhere or bought some some uh, real estate and they've just held on to it. They've developed it and they haven't sold it. And that's the way that you can think about generational wealth, just holding your assets and, and, and keeping your assets. And they fund the trust and they fund their families and their businesses and stuff by using that asset and taking loans against it, like mortgages, you know, getting a mortgage on your property and using that money to start a business or to, to do whatever you want with it. So he says that the way he looks at Bitcoin is like real estate, like prime real estate in Manhattan, where, you know, if you had bought a, a, a city block in Manhattan a hundred years ago, you'd probably be a billionaire by now. And you wouldn't be selling that city block. You'd be, you'd be taking loans on that. You'd be developing it. Mm -hmm. So he, that's the way that this new class of institutional money and super high net worth thinks about assets. They don't think about it like they're going to buy it and sell it for a 2x. They think about it like this is this is an asset I'm going to have in my family and going to hand down to my heirs. And if I want to like fund my lifestyle, I'll just take a loan on it. So I've, I've done this with my uh, people in my friend circle, my family. I've showed them how to do it. I've walked them through it. <clears throat> and you can just take a loan with a company like Ledin.io, L-E-D-N.io. You can open up an account. You can fund your account with some Bitcoin and then you can borrow against your Bitcoin. So... Yeah, you don't pay any money. You don't pay any taxes when you do that because you're not selling the Bitcoin. You're just there's some uh, added risk there. Sorry, I'm just going to drop the um, name of the site. So it's ledn.io. Um, Amir told me about this a few months ago, and I signed up and I use them. It's uh, it's well insured. I think they're insured up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars on the balances if you have your Bitcoin on deposit. Yeah, well, I don't know how much they're insured by, but like the the risk. I want to give people the risk profile of doing this right now because I wouldn't be taking loans out on my Bitcoin right now. A lot of my Bitcoin, I would take a loan on maybe like five to ten percent of my Bitcoin mm -hmm. because I'm fully aware. I've been in the market for so long that I'm fully aware that the thing is super volatile. And like we just saw over the last two weeks, it it went on an insane tear up to forty thousand, and now it's back to thirty thousand. So this is fair, you know, standard 
fair game for Bitcoin. This is just the way that the market works. Yeah. <clears throat> but it could it could drop like we are at a precipice here. There could be some crazy event that causes a real global shock in the markets like this whole Wall Street bets thing could shut the entire stock market down if they keep if they keep like liquidating hedge funds. I mean, this could this could systemically crash like the prime dealers, the prime brokers and the broker dealers and, and, and could shut down a big bank that that would cause a real drop in every asset, including Bitcoin. So if you've got a loan on too much of your Bitcoin, you could get liquidated. So I would just advise people to like think about this long term. Don't take too much risk. Yeah, um, I like my personal approach with where I stash crypto is I don't keep it all in one place, right? I've got cold storage. I've got some on Lendon. I've got some on some other platforms. Um, and I have some of the altcoins and the shit coins, which Brad doesn't like. We're not going to talk about that. But um, the vast majority of it is. Well, I, I got some shit coins, too, man. I'm not I'm not I, I'm not like. All right. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if you so if you put your crypto on deposit on some of these platforms and you can earn some interest. So London pays like 6.25% or something like that um, on an asset that arguably will appreciate over time. I mean, yeah, it's up and down. It's volatile, but over time, um, its value will be greater um, in two years than what it was today, probably. Um, you can also borrow against your Bitcoin there. And you can also go through some other programs. They have like double your Bitcoin where they basically collateralize whatever you have on deposit. And then they'll give you, a, you know, they'll basically double it and you pay the loan payment on it over the course of a year. So there's different ways to do this. This is relatively new. The way that Michael Saylor had explained it last night, and I want to kind of just go over this one more time because I think this is really, really important, is you don't want to buy... Me personally, I don't want to buy and sell Bitcoin, take profits, and then go back in again, like go in and out of it. I've done that. I sold to my Bitcoin back in the fall when it was at like 20 grand. So, you know, I pull out 40 grand. Okay. And then I wanted to buy back in some more. It cost me 70 grand to buy the two that I sold. So in my view, it's kind of stupid. Like I really didn't need to do that. I just, you know, got a little antsy about the whole scenario with watching the curves and the chart and going, ah, it's an all-time high. What do I do? Do I take some profits? So I let it sit. Look at it as digital real estate. Look at it like New York City, and there's only 21 million city blocks. There's never, ever going to be any more city blocks, and it's prime real estate, and it's and it's what people want. And you don't necessarily have to buy one city block. You can fractionally buy, I mean, you can buy $5 worth of Bitcoin. You know, they have these, you know, Satoshis because it's divisible into a bunch of decimal points. So Ideally, you want to buy and hold the real estate over a long period of time. And if you need cash, then you can borrow against it. It's a tax-free way of accessing cash if you need it, if you need to buy something. But I love that concept of um, Bitcoin as digital real estate. And I think that as time goes on, more and more people will start to recognize that as its true value. Um, let's talk about dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin. Um, so your note here is why dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin is... Uh, only is the better strategy instead of investing in or trading altcoins. <clears throat> yeah, so so like you know the 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 real big money that's coming in now there's there's like an 80 trillion dollar or say 60 60 trillion dollar wealth transfer that's going to happen from the the really high net worth like boomers and silent generation folks down to millennials and gen x's and and gen z's and a lot of them are going to start allocating to Bitcoin even before they die and before they like transfer the wealth down. A lot of the family offices and stuff, they're going to be buying Bitcoin and looking at it like that, looking at it like like this is the thing that like, you know, it's not crypto, it's Bitcoin. 
the the super high net worth like individuals that are being influenced by folks like Stan Druckenmiller and and uh, Michael Saylor and Paul Tudor Jones, like these bellwether brand names, these guys are like thinking a long term game. They're not thinking about making some quick buck with trading an altcoin or diversifying into an altcoin because they recognize that that diversifying is not it's not diversifying within an asset class it's diversifying across asset baskets so like they will diversify into gold or stocks or bonds or bitcoin you know or real estate it's not like they want to want to start diversifying, you know, buying Bitcoin as a hedge against their other positions and like a hedge against inflation and then think, oh, well, now I have to diversify against Bitcoin inside of the crypto space. They look at Bitcoin like digital real estate and like it's the winner take all. And it's the one that has the Lindy effect and the brand recognition and the best chart over the you know last 10 years. It's it's the most decentralized and it's the most likely to resist government takeover. So no other altcoin has the ability to resist a government. Like they're all centralized points of failure in in every other altcoin, especially Ethereum, the number two cryptocurrency. It's centralized to consensus and the Ethereum foundation. And they've already kind of set a precedent that they're willing to roll the chain back and they're willing to do forks for rescuing people's money. Um, they've set a precedent that it's not immutable and it's not censorship resistant. Now, over the last three years, they've tried really hard to simulate decentralization to make it appear as decentralized as Bitcoin. But the main key factor there is that not everybody can run a node. And there's 100,000 full node runners of Bitcoin who enforce the rules of the network. So they can't shut down Bitcoin from that perspective. And they probably couldn't shut down Bit shut down Ethereum from that perspective either. But what they could do is pressure the centralized points of failure to change to change how many Ethereum there are or to censor transactions. Like if Ethereum starts to, to process transactions for dark markets or something like that, um, they could they could if they really wanted to, or say like what's happening now on Ethereum is the decentralized finance stuff. This is all illegal securities and the regulators are kind of come down hard on this. They've already given guidance that this stuff is all illegal securities and they're already taking Ripple to like to ask over this and they're going to have to shut down Ripple and all the exchanges are delisting Ripple. Um, they've given a lot of guidance, like a lot of this shit is just illegal securities and, and the regulators aren't asleep. It's just they're they're taking slow action and uh, they take sometimes years to to go into effect and to take action. So I would say that if you're considering like coming in now and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I, I like Bitcoin. So so maybe I convinced like 20% th that 20% that that Bitcoin is going to zero. Maybe I convinced them, OK, value here, like I'll take a 5% bet on this. I'll, I'll put a little slice of my portfolio in this thing and just just a tail hedge bet just in case inflation keeps going. Like they saw your chart and they were like, holy shit, that's a lot of money that they're printing. <laughs> so maybe I'll buy some Bitcoin because it's scarce. Well, the next question they're going to see is like, okay, how do I buy Bitcoin? And they'll go to an exchange and they'll see, oh, well, there's Ethereum and there's Litecoin and there's Ripple and there's all this other shit. And they're going to probably think, oh, well, uh, maybe I'll buy one of these ones because they're cheaper because Bitcoin's 32, 33,000, but an Ethereum's only 1400 bucks and a Ripple's only 25 cents. So, so this one's better. And, and this is unit bias. Like, unfortunately, people just, just, you know, 
they don't realize that you got to factor in a lot of different things, not just the price. So Ethereum and Ripple and, and, and Monero and like all these other coins, they, they, they're cheaper, but their market, there's a lot more supply and they don't have the same scarcity as. So it's a real hard thing for people to understand, I guess, origin like initially it's like, you know, don't just look at the number, you know, that's not really important. You can buy $5 with a Bitcoin. Like you said, Rich, you don't, you don't need to buy a whole Bitcoin. So you can start with a small amount of Bitcoin. You gotta, you gotta fundamentally understand why Bitcoin is valuable. And then when you try to apply the same calculations to the altcoins, nothing holds up against Bitcoin. Um, and, and the main thing is that the same mentality that will, that will get you wrecked buying altcoins will get you wrecked trying to trade Bitcoin. So don't try to trade Bitcoin either. Like unless, unless you have the mentality where you're willing to set some rules for yourself and you're willing to lose all the money that you're going to put trading and you're not going to be over leveraging yourself and trying to become like a Wolf of Wall Street trader or something like that. Just if you wouldn't go do this with penny stocks or if you're not on Wall Street bets buying options for, for over leveraged short sold stocks, don't buy altcoins and just don't trade in Bitcoin. So if you're not willing to put in the work and, and really learn what you're doing, then don't do it. And like, I feel like anybody that's pushing altcoins without, without like, even if people are pushing altcoins and they're educating people about the risks and, and how to do it, you're still getting people wrecked because people are bad traders. Most people, if they don't naturally come to trading, they shouldn't be trained to be traders because even if you're right, and even if you get a 2x over just buying Bitcoin by trading altcoins, you're not going to sell the top. I mean, you're most likely going to sell too late and then you'll already then you'll be back in the same position you were and you just wasted all your time and created a crazy tax burden for yourself which is what most of the people in 2017-18 did so just don't bother like michael Saylor's not messing around with altcoins paul tudor jones is not messing around with altcoins why would you like it's it's not it's it doesn't make any sense you're you're more statistically likely to get wrecked by the professionals and the quant traders and the insiders and the VCs that have massive pre-mined bags of this shit dumping on you when the markets turn, then you are likely to actually make more Bitcoin. So you got to measure your portfolio in Bitcoin. That's the thing. Like Bitcoin is is going to be sucking in a lot of trillions of trillions of dollars of wealth over the next five years. Why are you going to measure in U.S. dollars? Measure in Bitcoin. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of guys that I know that like cryptocurrency and they understand bitcoin but they go for the shit coins like they go for the altcoins because they see the potential to 5000x their money instead of you know 200 times x their money over the same period of time right um what what what's a percentage do you hold of bitcoin versus the altcoins i'm about 85% bitcoin mm -hmm. And uh, I, I got some, I dabble around with it because I got a lot of friends and stuff in this space. And, um, you know, I invest in some of the projects. Like, how do you guys think I know how shady this shit is? It's because I know all the people making it. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm in the degenerate trading rooms where they're talking about it all. It's like, it's not all about the technology. It's about, it's the same, it's the same as the VC game. These VCs get super sweet pre-sale pre deals, like pre-seed round deals and seed round deals. They get all the value accrual because they get the shit at cheap cheap prices, and then they dump it on people at later rounds. That's that's fine if you know what the game is. I mean, sure, you can you can do that, but that's exactly what cryptocurrency is. It's just 
It's the same thing that goes on on Wall Street and in the VC world. Like Bitcoin is a totally different thing than than this. Yeah, there's there's eight thousand three hundred and fifty one cryptocurrencies currently listed on Coin Market Cap. Um, there's only one Bitcoin, so there's a lot. So there's thousands of things going on there. Yeah, and a lot of people hoping that one of those other things will become bigger than Bitcoin, which that's the yeah. That's the thing that pisses me off the most is like. So I don't mind if someone's an altcoin trader or a Bitcoin trader or a penny stock trader or a Wall Street bets trader. You know, it's like you can buy Tesla all you want. I'm, I'm going to celebrate you when you make money. The thing that I don't like to see is people who are fooling other people into thinking that these other things are the same as Bitcoin because mm. they're not like there's going to be a time when the bubble pops and maybe Bitcoin even goes down a lot. But I don't think it is next. I don't think like Bitcoin doesn't go down as much as the altcoins. Altcoins go down like negative 96%. Like that, you can lose a lot more money messing around with altcoins. Yeah. Um, I got a bunch of notes here that I want to hit on. And um, I've got, um, you know, for those of you guys right now that are watching this, like, okay, so how do I get started? I, I pinned in the top comment. Um, the major exchanges where you kind of get the ball rolling. So let me just scroll down over here. I can't remember where I put them. There they are. So for a basic exchange in the US, I linked uh, Coinbase. These are all affiliate codes, by the way. So you know, if you set up, it, it throws me like 10 bucks or something like that. But um, so for a basic exchange in the US, Coinbase is probably the easiest in my view. Don't use it in Canada because the charges are way too high. If you're in Canada, a decent basic exchange, I'd recommend using Bitbuy. Uh, again, there's a link for that. If you want a more intermediate exchange in the US um, so you can get access to other coins or put coins on deposit to earn interest, I'd say go to Binance. And I'm going to let you talk about uh, international payments with Strike. There's a link there also for uh, that company, which uh, Brad knows a fair bit about. Um, I got to step out for about five minutes to um, do a little bit of uh, side work. I'm going to put Brad on full screen here and just mute my camera, but I will be back. There's a whole bunch of questions on the right-hand side here too, Brad, that would keep you busy for at least 30 minutes. <laughs> um, if you I wanna hit some of those. Them. Do you have them on the right-hand side of your StreamYard? I don't see them. Private chat or comments? Oh, comments, private chat, yeah, okay. Lots of stuff there. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff there that you can hit on. People asking questions about things like Monero and Hex and apparently a fella that you once hit on for money to do Psycho Ranger movies or something, whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll let you kind of go through that and and then spend a little bit of time on the international payments uh, component of uh, Strike. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. Good. So I'm going to set Brad up on full screen and I'll be back in a few moments. Um, so yeah, so Strike is an app that I, I highly recommend everybody check it out. I think Rich said that it was in the YouTube comments or something there. If you go on my Twitter profile, it's pinned a, a pinned tweet as well. I'm going to give everybody five bucks who uses my link for Strike. Um, stri I'm not like a shareholder in Strike, and I'm not really getting anything out of this except for that we don't have any good payments apps in Canada. We don't have Venmo or, or anything like that, so we don't have Cash App. So I just really want to see Strike launch, and they're giving the priority to launching in the countries that have the most referrers. So I'm trying to become the number one referrer for strikes so that they can open up the freaking app in Canada because we got no good apps. 
Um, but strike is <clears throat> strike is like everybody should like people are sleeping on on Bitcoin and Lightning Network in the crypto space. A lot of um, a lot of people are like trying to sell you altcoins that will say, um, "Oh, Bitcoin's not fast enough," or "Bitcoin's too expensive to use," or "Bitcoin doesn't use is not used as money anymore." Like people will shill this this deceptive false narrative that Bitcoin and Bitcoiners and Bitcoin maximalists don't want Bitcoin to be used as money. It's ridiculous. Like they're just trying to sell you some kind of so use strike use lightning network bitcoin scales out on second layers in a way that's um not linear but like you know it's it's parabolic like the lightning network can scale to handle billions of people using bitcoin and we've also got other layers too it's not just lightning network there's side chains um there's even you know you could even say centralized exchanges are are scaling layers for bitcoin they're not as they're not the same uh, ethos is base layer Bitcoin, but um, Strike is Strike is built by this kid uh, Jack Mallers, and it's going to be like a. It's like you can open up a bank account with it. You get your own bank account, um, FDIC insured bank account, if you're in the U.S. and you can accept your pay your your paycheck into your Strike account, and then you can send money to anybody in in 200 countries as they roll them out over the next two quarters to use Bitcoin and you can use it and you can dominate, denominate it in dirty fiat dollars. So I can send you a hundred dollars worth of uh, Canadian bucks to, you know, if you're in Nigeria and you want to accept, you know, Naira or whatever, I can do that. So everybody should check out strike. Um, use my link and I'll give you five bucks when they go live. Uh, just send me a request, like strike me for five bucks and I'll send you $5 of Bitcoin. So we've got uh, a few questions here. <clears throat> it says Facebook user once once asked me for money for a Psycho Forest Ranger movie. That's funny. That's from a while back. I don't know who the Facebook user is. Uh, Josh asked, where does Bitcoin derive its value? I already explained that, hopefully. Jeff Jones said, it seems like the price is already high, way too high for me to jump in. That's why that's why dollar cost averaging is a good strategy. <clears throat> um, I'm buying I'm buying the dip. I'm buying every single day since we broke the all time high at twenty thousand dollars. I've been buying more Bitcoin. I buy every time there's a new high made. I buy every time there's a, a a dip in the price, and I buy every time that somebody triggers me on Twitter, chilling a shitcoin. So I'm I'm buying Bitcoin a lot, <laughs> and I'm dollar cost averaging in. So I think like Jeff asked. Uh, you know, it seems too high. Well, if you think Bitcoin seems too high, then every other cryptocurrency is too high because they're all way overvalued. Um, and and think about the value that Bitcoin can can suck in. So gold is like a $12 trillion market cap. Uh, Bitcoin is a $500, $600 billion market cap. In order for Bitcoin to become the same level of uh, value storage as gold, which is really what Bitcoin is competing with, Bitcoin has to be like 500,000 to a million dollars. So for the next three to five years, that Bic that gold is going to go up 2x, which it probably will. Then that'll put it at about a $20 trillion market cap. And if Bitcoin is like matching gold as a, as a, a digital form of real estate and a digital form of store of value like gold, like a scarce commodity, it's going to be $20 trillion too. It's going to be up there with gold most likely. 
that's what I'm betting on anyways. So I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking a lot more risk than I advise other people to take. Um, I'm, I'm pretty heavy into my, into my portfolio percentage allocation, uh, you know, basket of Bitcoin. Uh, I own more Bitcoin as an asset class and I have like real estate and cash and stuff like that in stocks. So I would suggest that people, like, if you want to just conservatively just start dollar cost averaging in, just set yourself a goal. Like owning no Bitcoin is the worst move that you can make. Even if even if I'm wrong and everybody else is wrong and Michael Saylor's wrong and Bitcoin doesn't go to like, you know, become a, an exit hatch that the, the world's $200 trillion of sort of value wealth can can flow into Bitcoin and hold it there in a way that's decentralized and uninflatable. Un, uh, if that doesn't happen, then, you, you know, make sure that you're not going to lose a lot. So just do like 5% or something. I got some uh, questions here I want to throw at you. Um, thanks for uh, thanks for running the show for that time, by the way. Um, so here's one from Brad, and he says, uh, what would stop Bitcoin from being manipulated through the paper market if it's adopted in a large number of ETFs? similar to how gold price is depressed through the unbacked trade of ETFs like IAU, BAR, and GLDM? Well, because because the Bitcoin uh, blockchain is is a transparent ledger, we can actually kind of keep them accountable because if they're, this is called rehypothecation and it's, it's pretty much, and the banks are doing it. And it's pretty well known that the banks are, manipulating the markets by selling sh paper shares of gold that, that and silver and stuff that they don't actually have access to. And S Scotiabank and Deutsche Bank and, and like a couple other banks were fined billions of dollars for market manipulation in the gold markets already. This is not like they do this. This is actually the same reason why, <clears throat> why uh, GameStop is going crazy right now because these, these Wall Street raccoons are short selling nakedly short selling shares meaning that they're selling shares that don't exist and the 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 market makers like citadel the company that bailed them that bailed out melvin capital the, the company that went bankrupt because of, of reddit citadel is the market maker and they are supposed to only sell shares short that exist, right? You think that's what that makes sense. Like same as gold. You're not supposed to sell gold certificates for gold that doesn't exist. Just like you're not supposed to short sell shares of a company that don't exist. But while, but you know, Wall Street bets and these analysts over there, these degenerate analysts, and even Michael Burry, the guy from the from the big short, the guy that shorted uh, the the collapse of the housing market. They, he identified that this short selling is happening, this naked short selling. So he went long on GameStop in 2019. And now Wall Street Bets has just kind of like made the prophecy come true. And they also picked up on it. They said, this is fraudulent activity. Screw the, screw Wall Street. We're going to like pile into this and, and, and liquidate all these raccoons that are like stealing money and driving a company to zero for no good reason with with shares that don't exist mm. so they piled in and they exposed the fraud and like now they're caught with their pants down and, and they have to shut the markets off because they, they can't close they can't cover their positions because the shares don't exist so it's kind of difficult for that to happen on a decentralized public ledger though eh? yeah that's the reason why they, they would be less likely to do it with bitcoin because everything's transparent, you can everybody can see how much Bitcoin there is, 
And once we see that there's actually, we don't know how much gold there is. Like there's no record somewhere, some database that shows us exactly how much gold there is. Like the central banks don't even know how much money exists. They stopped reporting the numbers of, of the money supply because they lost track of it. They don't know how much money exists anymore. Mm -hmm. You always know how much Bitcoin exists and where it is. Yeah. Um, got another question here from Brad. He says, at what point, sorry, at what price point or market size will government financial institutions take a renewed interest in crypto regulations? It seems like we're already there when exchanges are being blocked at the U.S. state level. Well, that's the thing about censorship resistance of why it's so important. It's resistant from regulators. If you've got your own Bitcoin running on your own computer or in your own phone, they can't shut that off unless they shut off the freaking Internet. <laughs> so they have to like they have to shut off the internet itself in order to stop Bitcoin. Right. Uh, Rocco says where to get started to learn the basics. Um, just just buy. Just you know, Rocco, you're in Canada. Go to Bitbuy with that link below. Buy some Bitcoin. You know, whatever you want. You want to buy a hundred bucks, thousand bucks, hundred thousand. That's where you just get started. You just buy it. Um, there's. There's fundamentals um, behind Bitcoin beyond what we've talked about. There's some really good documentaries. A few of them are on YouTube. Is there one that you would recommend everybody should watch to kind of like get the, you know, like the basics of Bitcoin? Well, everybody's kind of different. I'd say that a good a good resource for folks would be uh, I'm actually building something right now called Bitcoin Sherpa. And it's it's going to be like the start page for everybody. To, mm -hmm. to learn about Bitcoin because everybody has different questions about Bitcoin. You know, you remember clarity.fm, Rich? Yeah. Yeah. I'm still on it. I still use it. So I'm going to, I'm building like the clarity.fm for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And it's going to basically be just like a really quick way for someone to just type in what they're thinking and what they want to learn about because there's so many things, to, there's so many starting points for learning about Bitcoin. Like he might, uh, he might actually want to know how to buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. You know, we don't know. Like he might want five bucks worth of Bitcoin. He might want to start becoming a Bitcoin developer. He might want to integrate Bitcoin with his business. He might want to start educating, you know, about Bitcoin or learn about it for his kids. There's so many different questions here. So I'm, I'm building BitcoinSherpa.com to be this, the thing that just distills, like, what are you looking for? And the and point everybody into the direction of which rabbit hole they should go down and who to follow to get the information. Because mm -hmm. there's so many Bitcoin Sherpas out there that are just evangelizing Bitcoin and educating that I think we need a centralized spot where people can just find their tribe, you know, in Bitcoin. So, so I would just suggest for him to um, check out a couple of podcasts just to start subscribing to. Um, What's a good podcast? Well, Peter McCormick has a really good podcast, What Bitcoin Did. Okay. And I have a podcast, Magic Internet Money. Um, so I've, I've had two really good podcast episodes I think everybody should listen to. Willie Wu, he's like one of the biggest analysts in the space. He, okay. he was just on my last episode. And then um, Preston Pish, he has a podcast, We Study Billionaires and, yeah. with the Investors Network. And he was about four weeks ago. So those two episodes are really great for anybody that's got an investment mindset to get started okay guys you can look those up um another question here uh bitcoin is in correction territory down 25 percent. quick look at the charts uh blah 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 he says do you expect to see twenty thousand dollar bitcoin price uh where is the floor on the current downward move i love how people want you to peer into your crystal ball and <laughs> tell them the future <laughs> so speculating into like, the future, 
What do you think, you know, Bitcoin's going to bottom out at before? I, I think it's like, to, to, we, I think we've seen the bottom already. I think the bottom's the bottom's in and it just keeps bouncing off of that 29 something level. Um, so I keep buying it. Every time we touch it, I buy it. So I'm confident that that's going to be the the bottom for this sort of macro structure of the of the of the bull market because it's not like we've entered into a bear market it's just cooling off a little bit mm-hmm. and it feels more to me like we're at about two thousand dollar bitcoin in 2017 like after we broke the all-time high of 1200 we shot up and then we kind of like corrected down 25 30 percent and then we shot up again and we corrected like 40 percent and then we went to two thousand dollars and it kind of like chopped around and was going up and down like this is normal activity for bitcoin but then it rocketed parabolic thousand from like you know four or something like that. I feel like where we are right now is more like we were like in 2017 when we were at two thousand dollars, not twenty thousand. So I think we're going to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or something in the next say twelve months. And I don't. I mean, maybe we'll see twenty thousand dollars. I'd say it's a fifty percent chance. But I'll buy it if we get there. Yeah, if you see it, mortgage the house and buy it, man. <laughs> I, I might actually. like. I think I might actually take a loan on one of my properties and just buy Bitcoin with it. <laughs> yeah. um, what do you think of Tone Vase, by the way? I've been watching so, a couple of his um, you know, casts, and he seems to have some interesting um, views on it. Well, Tone Vase is, is like a total OG, like um trader guy bitcoin trader mm-hmm. I, I like chone because he's not he's not just a raw raw perma bull he's got good technical analysis and he's a good contrarian when it comes to considering the bearish case mm-hmm. for for how it could drop the twenty thousand or you know a little even further sometimes so he's a good guy to watch for just getting one side of the story of of the price action I don't yeah. typically watch them though because I'm not really a trader. I don't really pay attention to that stuff. I just I buy. I, when we're in, when we're in a bull market, I'm just like you know this is going to keep going. They're not going to stop printing money. Biden's going to keep printing trillions of dollars. Like this money is going to keep flowing into other alternative assets. So I, I'm just going to keep buying. <laughs> so I just spelled it out there just so you guys can uh, look it up. But he's got a YouTube channel. It's just Tone T O N E and then V A Y S. I find it's interesting to kind of watch when I'm like looking up throw some money into it because i'm like okay you know are we at the bottom what does this guy say about it so he's interesting from the chart perspective is why i watch it um willie woo is definitely the best that there is and willie has a sub stack um it's a youtube channel too or no he doesn't do youtube he he goes on tone's show sometimes and he went on my show okay got it um there's another one here so somebody was asking is there a, a tfsa for crypto at all in canada the roth ira in the u.s can hold crypto via i trust capital but have not heard of any tax-free investment options so you can buy i think it's qbtc yeah so uh, free iq rrsp and tfsa and i think there's another one as well i iq3 or something like that 3IQ is the company that that owns the T, the GBTC. So QBTC, I'm just going to put it in the chat. Is yeah, this- it's QBTC.U if you want to buy it. And you can put it in your tax-free savings account, your registered education savings account for your kids or, or your RRSP. The best strategy there is to max out the TFSA first before you go into the retirement accounts because the TFSA is tax-free where the retirement accounts are tax-deferred. Um, and I'd also make sure that, you know, if you're going to buy Bitcoin and you're going to put, say, 5% of your, your net worth into Bitcoin and slowly dollar cost average in, 
no matter what the price is. That's the best strategy. I wouldn't put it all into the TFSA because the real value of Bitcoin is owning real Bitcoin. So I, I definitely recommend that people take advantage of the tax-free savings account and QBTC. I'm actually an investor in, in 3IQ. Like I invested in their uh, last round. So I'm a bit biased there, but I own the QBTC and I'm an investor in 3IQ, but I also tell people, buy Bitcoin. Don't buy 3IQ QBTC thing, like buy Bitcoin first. And yeah. then you can start messing around with the paper Bitcoin stuff because that's not real Bitcoin. Sure, it's it's backed by Bitcoin, but you want if if they if they do a new sixty one oh two, like like in nineteen thirty three when they made it illegal to own gold, and they do do that again and make it illegal to own assets and start like taxing un you know unrealized gains and making you turn in your assets and shit like that. You, if you have QBTC, you don't have Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. you know that's a bit conspiracy or not conspiratorial but uh paranoid i guess like as it stands right now you can't buy actual bitcoin under your rrsp or or tfsa the only way you can do it is is by qbtc yeah got it okay well there is another one too but i can't remember the name of it right now well there's also the grayscale ones but they've got pretty high funds or uh, fees too don't they yeah i'm actually an investor in another one called valkyrie which uh Tone Vase's good friend Leah Wald, she's on his show quite a bit. She launched that recently as well, and they've got a trust that's starting up in Canada, like uh, that you can put in your TFSA too. Cool. Um, so yeah, there's there's a bunch of them coming. All right, um, I got another like 15 minutes left. You you good to do another 15? Yeah. All right, let's see what else we can hammer out here. Uh, ways to accumulate more Bitcoin without trading or mining it. That's a question from Peter. Um, so the biggest, the best answer there is to, the best answer there is to just kind of like learn about sound money and Austrian economics. And, you know, somebody, somebody that's really good there is Robert Breedlove. He's, he's been doing a lot of philosophical sort of writing and going on podcasts and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, same with, same with, um, Preston Pish and the investors network, like those guys, just I think if you have a better foundational understanding of value and like thinking long term, then you'll slowly stop thinking about spending your money on shit that doesn't help your future self and stop being consumerist and 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 use your time more efficiently and then put all your excess resources into things that are going to help your future self. And, and you know, you'll thank yourself later. Because a trader mentality and learning about things like that just makes you kind of like a quick to react to things and consumerist and you want to buy all that stuff. I mean, that's fine for some people, but for people who are just starting, I think it's more important to get a foundational understanding of why things are valuable and then understanding why Bitcoin is valuable and then like just earn dollars and put them buy into Bitcoin. <laughs> Or ask for payment in Bitcoin for your products or services if you can. Yeah, there's no easy answer here. Like the best thing that you can do is like buy Bitcoin or start a business and, and use your use your your money to buy Bitcoin with, with your business. Okay, here's another question from Pete. He says, uh, what's the amount of Bitcoin one must uh, one has to have to be considered a Bitcoin one percenter and how that might change within the next 10 years? So there's some whales out there. So if you guys don't know what a whale is, that's that's somebody that holds a large amount of Bitcoin. 
like Michael Saylor would be an example of something like that, or, or sorry, his company MicroStrategy would be an example of that. So um, it's kind of an offside question, but like what amount of Bitcoin do you have to have to be considered? Like, I think like anything over five is considered, you know, like the top 3%, isn't it? I would, I would say that um, if you have 0.1337 Bitcoin, then, and you hold that until the year 2030, then you'll be in the global 1%. 0.337. 0.1337 Bitcoin. If you if you buy and hold 0.1337 Bitcoin until 2030, then you'll probably be in the global 1%. I'm talking about like, you know, global 1%, not the US 1%. So so that's a target that That's about $4,278. Yeah, like hold that that you'll never sell. That's like the Michael Saylor strategy of I'm going to hold this for my heirs and I'm going to take loans on that, you know. If Bitcoin goes to like $10 million, that's a lot of money. Like that's going to put you into the global 1%. Yeah. Okay. Um, what are the legal prerequisites for large cap companies and funds to invest in Bitcoin? Do you have the answer to that? This is kind of an advantage. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is, if you go to MicroStrategy's website right now, they're actually going to do a conference for free for, for like thousands of public companies, CFOs and treasury secretaries and all this stuff to learn exactly about that. So there is a, he spent millions of dollars going through regulatory filings and figuring out how to integrate it with his bookkeeping and do disclosures with the SEC and do all that stuff to, to be able to use Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset because he's a publicly traded company. And then he's given away like the cheat codes to this for free as well, guys. So you can either go to his website or you can attend the conference if you have a, a company in the US and you're sitting on fat, uh, you know, stacks of cash, I guess. Um and if people want, like, I also am connected with a couple of OTC brokers who can facilitate that. So feel free to DM me on Twitter if you really are serious about, like, putting 10 or 20 or 100 million into Bitcoin. I can point you in the right direction. So I can buy $100,000 worth of Bitcoin through a friend of Brad? It's, it's you know, he's a friend, but he's, he's, a, he's a regulated OTC broker. <laughs> um, my buddy. Yeah, my buddy will sell you $100 million of Bitcoin. <laughs> Uh, let's see what else we got here, man. So, boom, boom, boom. okay. Um, B, so Bitcoin is considered to be in its development phase, which is considered to take about 10 to 15 more years. Is, is, is Bitcoin in its development phase or do you think it's past that now? I, I think that we're out of the, you know, initial bootstrap phase, but we're not, we didn't cross the chasm yet. So I would say we're still kind of in the early adopter phase. Okay. Um, what are the scenarios concerning its price or rather value change when Bitcoin will be fully adopted and will make overall investors money to leave the boat? Leave the boat. I guess they're leaving like this conventional. Right. Well, that's what, that's what's, you know, what, what we talked about earlier about valuing things in rational, sane terms, we need a base unit of account that can't be manipulated by a central banker or somebody to, to bail out a, a, a toxic hedge fund that should just go under. So Bitcoin, as a, as a base measuring stick and a global reserve currency that nobody can mess with, is going to allow tens of trillions of dollars of value to flow into the system and then once you've got bitcoin to the point where it's like competing with gold as a global reserve asset and dollars as a global reserve currency dollars are like 20 trillion 
or so gold is going to be 10 to 20 trillion like when bitcoin's 10 to 20 trillion even when it's 5 trillion um i'd say a hundred thousand dollar it's about two trillion dollars market cap when we're into the multiple trillions of market cap with bitcoin it just starts to become an avalanche and you, you start to see a lot of fomo from people who are watching their balance sheets evaporate by sitting in dollars, which are being inflated away, it's going to cause mass exodus of dollars and gold and real estate and stocks, especially stocks, because they're so overvalued. They don't make any sense at the current prices. That's going to all be sucked into Bitcoin. And then once you get to a point where the, the sovereign wealth fund of like Dubai or something like that, that manages $900 billion can think about putting hundred billion dollars and parking it in Bitcoin that, you know, they need the asset to be worth multiple trillions of dollars before they can move a hundred billion in. And I, I know the, the son of the, uh, the manager of the Abu Dhabi sovereign wealth fund through, through, through Bitcoin. And I was talking to him in 2017 and saying, we need this thing to be trillions of dollars before we even look at it, but we are looking at it. Mm -hmm. Like we're not going to just buy $10 million worth of Bitcoin. What's the point? We have 900 billion under asset. Like that's not going to move the needle. So, it's actually more, it's more enticing for people like that are like the real money masters of the universe to start using Bitcoin because they need the liquidity to move trillions of dollars into it. So his question is a good one, which is like, well, you know, so what if that happens? Well, then isn't everybody going to start selling for stuff? Well, that's an efficient market. And then we will have a, a sane way of valuing companies on the S&P 500 because Measuring things in dollars makes zero sense. Measuring the value of a stock in an asset that's being printed like 20% a year, it doesn't make sense. Everything is at a whack. So once we get to a sane monetary accounting standard where like you can account in something that's not being super devalued on purpose, then yeah, sure, people will start like me and like Preston Pish and 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 like you probably, Rich, will will start to find investing in things now because there, it, it makes sense to like move out of Bitcoin and move into a company because you'll it'll fundamentally make sense. The earnings will make sense. Now it's like 100x PE ratios for a stock makes no sense at all. Okay. So two last questions for you, Brad. Um, let's talk about shit coins, altcoins, whatever we want to call them. What's your, what's your favorite that you hold? Because you said you got 85% in Bitcoin. So you've obviously got some alts. So What's your favorite that you're leaning on and what's the one that you despise? Well, I don't really want to talk about any of my favorites because that's kind of what I don't like about this industry is like people talking about their favorites. Mm. I'm taking degenerate random investment bets. Like I don't think anybody should be doing what I'm doing. I'm willing to lose completely burn this this like bet that I've got. So I, I don't really want to talk about what I mean, because even what I like as a technology, what will happen is like somebody has been asking about Richard Hart and Hex this whole time. That's what ends up happening, because I went on Richard Hart's show a couple of years ago and kind of like talked to him about about Hex and why I didn't think it was a good investment. And like that they've just been nonstop memeing me ever since about like that I bought Hex and that I'm pumping Hex and all this shit. Like they just don't stop telling me that that I love Hex and I'm, I should buy more Hex and all this shit. Do you want to talk about the ones that you don't like? Um, I don't like the entire DeFi spectrum. I think that's just a lot of a lot of nonsense. It's and it's just like ICOs 2.0. I think that all these DeFi coins are overvalued, pump and dump Ponzi schemes. 
And if you were putting your hard earned Bitcoin at work in these farms and these liquidity pools, um, you're just exposing yourself to a lot of risk. There's smart contract risk. There's uh, flash loan liquidation risk. There's rug pull risk where, where people can just pull the liquidity at it. Liquidity at any. There's dump risk from the insiders because the insiders have got cheap and free bags of this stuff. They pre-mine and print it. Um, and then you've got general market risk where sure this stuff goes up in a bull market, but once the bull market stops and once this FOMO stops and the froth is gone, all these DeFi coins are just going to get wrecked because they fundamentally don't do anything. Mm. And even if there are ones, there are some that are fee sharing tokens where they actually make fees off the DeFi protocols, like the lending protocols. What do you think of that? What's that? What do you think of Celsius? Uh, Celsius is another one that I'm not really interested in. It's like they've they did an ICO and they've got a bit of regulatory risk. Sure, they got tons of money, but like it doesn't make any sense to have Celsius valued where it is. It's just a bubble meant it's a bubble valuation. So it's no different than like the game, you know, GameStop going up five hundred percent in a day. Like fundamentally, that's gonna come back down and a lot of people are gonna get hurt that are holding the bag. Got so it. I I wouldn't mess with these things. The only thing that you should think about these altcoins for, if you're absolutely going to be in them, is short-term investing in a bull market. If you have insider information and if you have an edge, then you then maybe you can make some money with it. And the other thing is, if you're going to be, <clears throat> what's that, Rich? And, and then take your profits and turn it into Bitcoin, right? Yeah, don't measure in dollars. Measure in Bitcoin yeah. and take your profits into bitcoin and and realize that if you're doing that you're you're gonna have to pay taxes on every time you swap a coin for a coin if you're in the canada or the united states these things aren't like tax-free you know trades and if you bought your bitcoin or your ethereum at an exchange and then you withdraw it to a DeFi protocol and start using it thinking oh well i can do this under the table because it's not on an exchange the chain analysis companies like flag that and you'll be reported to the the CRA or the IRS when not reported to but you'll be you're exposed if they start asking for the data so like people don't think that their De defi is decentralized and disrupting regulators and you know it's not it's it's all being tracked and it's all, it, unless you acquired your bitcoin or your or your ethereum or whatever in a really anonymous way that they can't track you and you're using a VPN and it never touches your anything that knows who you are. You're gonna have to pay your taxes on that, otherwise you're gonna get in shit eventually. Like they're looking into this stuff. Okay, uh, we got to run. We're at the end of the show. We got one quick question here. He says, "Have you seen the stock to flow model? I believe we're only halfway through this bull run. That's what the stock to flow suggests." Final thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not like a super trader guy, technical analysis guy, so I think it's a fun meme, like. It makes sense if you think about it in the same way that I think about Bitcoin could one day become a $10 trillion asset competing with dollars and gold. Um, stock to flow is just this fun sort of like um, mathematical equation that just says Bitcoin's just going to moon. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, get ready, buy Bitcoin, and, uh, and one day you'll have a citadel. So just buy and hold and stop looking at the stupid charts, basically. All right, Brad. That was good. That was real good, man. We did 90 minutes of tons of value there. I think you I think you covered a lot of the basics. We could probably do this for hours. But uh, guys, if you enjoyed that, leave a comment below. Hit the like button. And Brad, you can be found on Twitter. Is that where you want to send them? Or Yeah, sure. Twitter at Brad Mills can. 
And then you can find a link to my podcast and where I'm giving away five bucks and a strike to anybody that uses my uh, referral URL to get a strike account. And that's below. So uh, you've heard all about the red pill. Brad's the orange pill, the Bitcoin guy. <laughs> Thanks, brother. We'll see you guys in the next cast.